I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to The Andy Rowe Show. In 1990, Raphael Rowe was falsely convicted of murder as one of the infamous M25-3, and he spent 12 years in prison for crimes he did not commit. Raphael is going to talk you through what happened, the obvious reasons that it couldn't have been him, and how he finally got free. Hope you enjoy the episode. Once a month, I get a delivery through the letterbox store, some freshly packaged coffee from packcoffee.com. It comes directly from the farmer, so by the time I put it in my stovetop coffee maker and froth some milk, I'm drinking the freshest, most delicious coffee I've ever made. And if you go to packcoffee.com, that's P-A-C-T, coffee.com, you'll get five quid off your first bag when you create a flexible coffee subscription. And make sure you enter the code Andy Rowe at the checkout. This is really important. You'll get a discount, and you'll also show your support for this podcast so I can keep creating more content. Go to packcoffee.com and create your coffee subscription. The code is valid when you create a packed coffee plan for new customers only. Raphael Rowe, thank you very much for joining me. Andy, thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast. I know you requested and we made a connection many, many months ago, actually. But, um, you know, time schedules don't allow things to happen. So I'm really pleased that that it's happening right now. And I know I'm in London and it's nine o'clock in the morning and you're in New Zealand. That's a very different time frame. So we're at different points of the day. So you're probably a lot more energized right now than I am. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned uh, that I'm in New Zealand because I read your book. Well, I know we're talking about it off air, but I read your book, Notorious, while I was in quarantine and in New Zealand for 10 days. So Whilst I thought I was being pretty hard done by it, did put a lot of things in perspective for me. I suppose that's that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Because we all go through our own personal experiences. Mine was a, a very different type of quarantine. And so when we were all in this lockdown period, wherever you are in the world, it affected people differently. But for someone like me, who spent many, many, many years in prison, I know what it really feels like to be deprived of making decisions doing things that you get used to you know when it was when it's taken away as opposed to when you do it willingly to protect other people etc so yeah the experience of being quarantined or isolated because of the whole covid pandemic is very different from being quarantined or isolated because you've been wrongly imprisoned which is what my book notorious shares yeah it's an amazing book let's let's start straight into it let's just go to 19th of december 1988 police stormed your house in the middle of the night talk me through that experience and and what happened they did storm my house in the middle of the night guns blazing you know if you think of a a movie where you know you have these dramatic scenes of police kicking off doors running into a room shouting and arresting people, dragging them out. And then sometimes they found the guilty. But for me, it was the beginning of a nightmare. I was 20 years old. And on that dreadful 
night early hours of the morning when the police kicked off my flat door I was arrested for murder attempted murder and a series of robberies which had which had received a lot of media attention so there was a lot of attention on the police they were being looked at and what they were doing to apprehend this so-called N25 gang that's what the the media dubbed this gang of three men that were involved in in those horrendous crimes so I was arrested alongside a number of other people taken to a police station and like many of the other people that had been arrested, interrogated by the police. I was interrogated for three days, questioned about a murder and robberies that I did not know anything about. So, you know, I was 20. So in those interviews, it wasn't my first brush with the law. You know, I'd been in trouble with the law before. Nothing major, I would say, because I lived a life that was challenging growing up in a deprived inner city London estate. That's not an excuse. It's just where I came from, what my life was like. So when I was in the police station being questioned about crimes, I knew I hadn't been involved in. I was a little bit cocky, but I was mostly scared. I was frightened trying to give it the big I am at 20 years old. Mm -hmm. The police were interrogating me and asking me all sorts of questions about whether I was or wasn't involved. And then it moved quite quickly from them inquiring as to whether I could have been involved in these crimes to them literally accusing me of being one of those responsible. And it didn't matter what I said, how I said it, what I suggested in terms of my alibi, they were not prepared to, to listen to that. So those first three days after my door was kicked off and I was arrested at gunpoint and then interrogated, I was then charged with the murder, the attempted murder and the series of robberies within three days. And then I ended up going to a remand centre, which was a prison within a prison. So probably the most maximum security prison here in the United Kingdom. When did you start to realise what it was that they were trying to pin on you? I mean, you say you've been in brushes with the law. You're thinking, you know, it could have been for something else or whatever. But when did you actually start to realise what it was that they were trying to pin on you? Do you know, it's really, it's a good question because when you're in a police station and you're being interrogated anybody who's been in that situation will understand that you are really isolated you are on your own especially when you're being asked questions about something as serious as a murder you don't sort of mingle and mix with people so you discover what's going on the only person you have any interaction with during that that period or for me in those three days was the duty lawyer this is i.e a solicitor that the police have called to come in to represent my interest, if you like, somebody I've never met before who just turns up in the cell and says, my name is X, Y, Z, I'm here to help you. And you think, well, who the hell are you and where did you come from? And then the only other people you interact with are the interrogating police officers. So it was only during the questioning that I knew I was being accused of being involved in a gang. I knew that I was being accused of a murder and a series of robberies. All of it was a fuzz and a buzz to me because I knew that I wasn't involved in the things that they were saying that I was involved in and why I felt cocky. And then I'm taken to this prison within a prison and I'm confined. And so it wasn't really until I was in the prison on remand, now waiting to be taken to trial, that 
I was drip fed little bits of information. And because I was in a prison within a prison, and by that, I mean, I was inside a prison that was built inside a prison. Mm. So it meant I was even further isolated than the normal prisoner, if you like, because we were deemed to be so dangerous. It was only in the next few months that I started to have more visits with my solicitor who started to discover more about what the charges were about. few months? It was months. I mean, one of the the first things I saw was, was a newspaper headline that another prisoner slipped under my door at some point to share with me the fact that that's what I was in prison for and that the crimes that I was being accused of had made front page headlines for days. Now, I didn't know that at the time because I had no reason to. I knew that I was charged with murder, of course, and attempted murder in a series of robberies, but I didn't understand what that meant for months whilst I was on remand. What was it that they were saying to you when they were interrogating you? You mentioned like the line of questioning changes. What kind of stuff are they saying to you? And I'm, I'm guessing that you're probably quite sleep deprived. And were they trying to get inside your head or what What was their experience like? You know, some people go through an experience where the police try to get them to confess. That wasn't my situation. Sometimes people go through an experience where the police beat and bully the suspect into admitting that they were involved. That wasn't really my experience. You're right. It was more of a psychological deprivation of, and and the fear factor. You know, I was 20 years old. I was being interrogated and accused of being involved in a murder that I knew I wasn't involved in. I hadn't been involved in this crime. And in a series of robberies in which one person was severely stabbed and nearly lost their life. So that was the attempted murder. And then these horrendous aggravated robberies where the victims were tied up and their property and belongings were stolen so this is the the sort of line of questioning it was more an incredible fearful you did this no I didn't yes you did no I didn't and then you had the typical bad cop good cop there was like if you can imagine the Sherlock Holmes in one corner smoking his pipe the old British kind of traditional looking cop, if you like, and then the bad one who rolled up his sleeves. That's the only way I can really describe the two interrogating officers that I faced. And the one who rolled up his sleeves, if you like, the younger of the two cops, just wasn't prepared to listen to anything I was saying in in my defence. And the reason for that was because he was listening to what other people were saying to him, i.e. there were other suspects or other witnesses who were saying things against me not that I was directly involved in the crime like they were there and Raphael was with me that wasn't what was going on the police had got these witnesses to say that I did things or that they saw me do things that was related to the crimes or that they did things on my behalf for example one girlfriend at the time who was actually crucial to my alibi she had told the police not at the beginning but later on during the interrogation she had told the police that she'd come into some jewelry some diamonds that had been robbed from one of these aggravated robberies and that those diamonds the police were saying I had given to her to hold on to another piece of information that I was being accused of was some of the other suspects that were being interrogated by the police were telling the police that I had asked alongside my co-defendants had asked them to dispose of the vehicles that we used in the robberies. So this was the sort of interrogation that I was going through. You, you done that. No, I didn't. You told those guys mm. to dispose of the property that was stolen from the robberies. 
my response was, no, I didn't. Why are they saying this? That's a lie. Let me go back to the girlfriend. So when she was telling the police during the interrogation that I'd given her property stolen from the robberies, that was what the police were using against me. That's one of the reasons I was charged. That's one of the reasons I ended up going into police custody. Whilst I was on remand in this prison within a prison, I received a letter, a handwritten letter from this girlfriend apologising for telling lies about what she told the police and that she was put under extreme pressure by the police to say what she said. And that was why I was charged, because the police conspired or pressured witnesses to give evidence, false evidence against me. When I talk about the other suspects giving the police information about disposing of cars. That kind of information only came to light when the police forensically examined those cars and discovered the fingerprints of other suspects on these cars many, many months after I was already in custody. What I'm trying to say, Andy, is when the evidence pointed in a different direction, rather than the police pursue that investigation, they conspired with witnesses to change their evidence to fit me into the evidence as opposed to fit me up, if that makes sense. Yeah, I can't imagine the frustration that that would have caused you because you're sitting there, you're knowing you're innocent, you're knowing there's evidence that will clear your name and the police are just not willing to have a look at it at all. And I, We'll work our way and, and have a look at a, a little bit more of that evidence throughout the interview in a bit more detail because it's quite crucial to the back end of the 12 years that you spent and sort of summing things up but as far as the the media goes at what point did you realize how big of a storm this was outside of the cell within the prison within the prison well two ways really i think the first was the way i was being treated by the authorities i.e the prison authorities and the police you know we're talking helicopter escorts we're talking police outriders we're talking a convoy of police cars with sirens blaring as I was arrested this wasn't just put in the back of a police car in handcuffs you know and and off into the distance goes this innocent man we're talking guns blazing arrest helicopters you know click 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 of the media taking pictures of the arrest so the police had already notified the media really that's what it was about when we were arrested and i was being taken from my property you know the media were there taking pictures because the police and the authorities needed to show the public that they'd made these arrests of this gang that was terrorizing a very wealthy part of surrey in in england which is you know the stockbroker belt around the M25, hence the reason the media dubbed the gang the M25 gang, because they were committing these crimes in and around the most wealthiest parts of, of the United Kingdom, one of the most wealthiest parts. So it was at that point, I mean, I didn't realise the significance of it at that point, because I was being bounced from my flat at gunpoint, but there were flashing lights media there was the sirens the mm. helicopter outriders as we were taken from one police station to another to be interrogated when i was taken from the police station to the prison again it was this kind of quiet moment because they not told the media we'd been taken off and it was when i was in this prison within the prison the way i was treated the fact that i was in this prison within a prison and i keep repeating that because i can't underestimate how daunting and terrifying that experience was you know 20 years old 
But it was during the time that I was on remand that when I did have interaction with some of the other prisoners and they were showing me the newspaper headlines that had hung around the prison, if you like, prison newspapers are not disposed of the next day. People hang on to them for months simply because it gives them something to do to read because, Mm. you know, you read every line in every page every minute. So discovering what was in the headlines was other prisoners telling me. So it was when I was on remand, really, that I discovered that, you know, this case was like front page headlines, news bulletin headlines for a duration of at least four or five days. You know, are the police going to catch? Aren't they going to catch this gang? Who were these men responsible for these horrendous crimes? How can the police allow this thing to go? So, you know, the media were questioning the authorities' ability to keep England or the United Kingdom, in particular London, safe from this notorious gang. Do you remember the your how you felt when they said we're charging you with murder? I was taken from one police station to another police station, and I remember the police officers telling me that they were going to charge me with the murder and the robberies. And I didn't believe it. I thought it was a tactic to scare me. Mm. I thought somehow... You just couldn't charge someone with a crime that they didn't commit. It's something as serious as murder. You know, forget me, forget the police. Think about the victims here. You know, for the police to pursue a line where they are about to charge someone that I believe they knew was innocent. You know, police have these things in their bonnet where they believe that they've got the right suspects, even if they don't have the evidence. They're convinced in their own mind, based on what they know, that the right person they have in front of them is guilty, even if they don't have any evidence, real evidence, mm. i.e. forensic evidence or identification evidence or you know, solid evidence to show that that person is guilty, which is not what happened in my case. I don't like to believe that that's what they would do for the victim's sake, that, you know, the police should pursue this line of finding the real guilty person of the crime they committed against that poor victim, especially in a case where where murder is involved for the for the relatives. So when they said that they were going to charge me, I didn't believe that they were going to charge me. And I was kept in the cell to almost shake for three hours, if you like, until a few hours after they told me that they opened the cell, they took me into the charging room. They took my fingerprints at this point. And it wasn't just, you know, dip my finger in a bit of ink and, and rub it on this fingerprint sheet. It was almost try and break every one of my fingers as they dipped it in the ink and rolled it on this piece of paper with such force that it really did hurt. And that might seem a minor thing, but it shows the aggression that the police had towards me at this point. And then I was charged and it's difficult to describe what it's like because everything up until that point had been surreal. We're three days into, you know, no sleep, deprivation, you know, this interrogation. And there is a little bit of you that thinks it needs to be over. And being charged is one of those ways that it it is over. And I remember the rolled up sleeve cop as he was putting me back in the cell. And it was the 22nd, 23rd of December, 1988, so a couple of days before Christmas. And I remember him telling me to to roast in hell. And as I say in my book, Notorious, it wasn't about him sort of saying, you're a bad guy and you deserve to roast in hell. It was just a cop who didn't like me for a number of reasons. And one of those reasons was the colour of my skin. The fact that I, as a, a young mixed race, dreadlocked black man in some people's eyes was having mixed relationship with young white girls. You know, there were lots of little 
nuances to why that police officer disliked someone like me. Hence the reason I believe that I went on to be charged and the investigation was pursued. So that's what it was like when I was charged. Do you think that he genuinely thought that you did it though? I don't think he cared. I, I think the the cop who I would describe as Sherlock Holmes, DC Gallagher was his name. I think that he was more thoughtful about whether what was being done was the right thing because when you step outside of that interrogation and you go and look at the, the bigger picture, and this takes months, I'm not saying that this happened over those three days, but if the police did their job right, they would have realised that I could not have committed the crime because of the cast iron alibi witnesses that placed me many, many miles away from the scenes of the crimes at the time the crimes were being committed, according to the victims. But the rolled up sleeve cop, I think there was a bit of him that didn't like me. That's not enough for a police officer to pursue charging someone for murder. I think there was an element of racism, no question about that in his attitude towards me. I think that because other, other witnesses were more forthcoming in telling the police what they wanted to hear or in other words lying to the police or corroborating what the police wanted them to corroborate i.e Raphael did it yes did he give you any property yes he gave us property what did you do with that property or oh, we put it at a girlfriend's house there was no questioning of well did you steal that property did you put it there because you stole it and were trying to hide mm. it that was not the police officer's line of questioning the line of questioning was very much you tell us that Raphael told you to do all of that and you will be okay. So I believe that he was gathering the evidence that he needed and the police officers needed to charge me rather than pursue the investigation that would lead to the real perpetrators being charged with the crimes. So you still must have had some confidence that if this goes to trial, the evidence is going to come out and you're not going to go to jail. I don't think anybody believes that, that they're going to be wrongly convicted, even someone as cocky and as terrified. And I use both of those terms together because I was 20. You've got to remember, I was a happy-go-lucky kid at 20 who was doing what you're supposed to do at that age. I mean, either you're going to university and you're getting a good education. That wasn't my life. Or you're kind of living that life where you're having a good time. That was my life, involved in petty crime involved in just having a good time. And that's who I was, didn't have a real direction, didn't know where I was going in life. I was smart enough to know that something would happen in my life, but I didn't know when that was gonna happen. And at 20, I really did, and most people do today, but life was very different back in 1988. So when I'd gone through the remand period, it was during that time, Andy, that I was starting to receive the documentation. This is the sort of witness statements where I become more and more aware of the actual evidence that was being used and was going to be used and the witnesses and the statements that were going to be used at my trial, that I did become more hopeful. I did become more confident. And the biggest and most important reason is this. The victims of the crimes, and there were three crimes, let's be clear, there were three crimes committed in the period of less than 24 hours. The first was the murder where two men in a car were hijacked by three men. One of those men were, were beaten and he died as a result of his injuries. The guy that he was with survived. When he raised the alarm, he told the first witness, he told the police who attended the scene that the perpetrators consisted of two white men, 
and one black man. A few hours after that attack and murder, the three suspects who stole the car of the murder victim arrived at a property where they broke into that property. The occupants tried to defend their property. One was severely stabbed and almost died. When the police arrived at that scene, the perpetrators had fled in the cars belonging to those occupants. The occupants gave the police statements describing the perpetrators as two white men and one black man. So the first crime and the second crime consistent in terms of the identification. It went a little bit further in that the victim described one of the white perpetrators as having blue eyes and fair hair because he saw that beneath the balaclava that they were wearing. So these men were wearing masks like ski masks, balaclavas, you know, eyes cut out, mouths cut out. Mm. And those three perpetrators went on to commit another robbery on the same night at a different property. And the occupants of that property, although they were not harmed, they were tied up and their property was stolen and their cars were stolen. And it was those cars I talked about at the beginning that were disposed of and burnt at the scene away from the crime. And those victims at the third crime had described the perpetrators they believed to be at least one white man, but they couldn't be sure because they spent most of their time tied down. Now, I mentioned that because I was discovering this for the very first time about six months after I was charged and in prison. Now, at the time, I had dreadlocks. My dreadlocks came down to my shoulders. I have brown eyes. I have light brown skin. My co-defendant, who was also charged at the time, is a black man. He had dreadlocks with brown eyes. And my third co-defendant, someone I didn't know, was also a black man. He didn't have dreadlocks, but he had very dark African dark skin and brown eyes. So when you have three black men charged on remand, awaiting trial, and I'm sitting in my cell, Andy, reading the documents from the victims, the key component in this case, the victims, who are describing at least two white men and one black man at these three separate crimes. You're thinking you're sweet. You're thinking you're getting off this easy, surely. You know, it was more than that. It was terrifying to think that I could even be held on remand and be charged with these offences because the police were ignoring the victim's statements. It wasn't about, hold on a minute, what am I doing here? I mean, that's the easy thing to say. Hold on, what am I doing here? What are my co-defendants doing here? The victims have described the perpetrators had they made a mistake, is something going wrong here? If it was one scene, you could question it. You could say terrifying ordeal. Maybe they got and made mistakes. How you make those mistakes, I don't know. You know, brown skin, white skin, mm, blonde hair, blue eyes. How do you make those mistakes? I mean, these are significant mistakes. So something serious was wrong here. So yeah, I might have been sat in my cell, but it was more of a terrifying experience for me because... I had been charged. I was on remand. And yet the description of the perpetrators did not fit me or my co-defendant. Were you thinking at that point, obviously you are terrified, as you said, but are you thinking at that point, there's no way they're going to pin this on me or it's no way I'm going to go to prison for it? Are you, or are you thinking, I am being stitched up by the system properly here? First and foremost, stitched up by the system, being fitted into a crime that I did not commit by the police. And there's more to that, as I say, as the police uncovered evidence that pointed even further away. So the description 
position of the perpetrators is one, but there were a number of other things, mm. you know, where evidence started to point. As, as I was on remand and the police were carrying out further investigation, the only forensic evidence, let's say, you've got three serious crimes here, Andy. There must be some forensic evidence left by the perpetrators at some of these crimes for the police to discover that they could then really identify the real perpetrators. There was none. There was no forensic evidence linking me or my co-defendants to any of these crimes, right? The only forensic evidence in this case were fingerprints. And those fingerprints were found on the car used by the perpetrators to arrive at the scene of the murder. Now, when the police discovered those fingerprints, they belonged to one man, and that man was called Norman, Norman Duncan. And he was the only man in this case who was white-skinned, blue-eyed, and fair-haired. Yet he was the key prosecution witness against me and my co-defendants. When the police discovered his fingerprints on the car at the scene of the murder, I'm charged, I'm on remand, as is my co-defendants. When they discover the fingerprints, they go back to him and they get him to say that he stole the car from me and that his fingerprints were on the car because he stole the car from me. He never said that until they discovered the fingerprints on the car. And there's a lot more to this character than meets the eye. Yeah, he, wasn't he a paid police informant? He was a paid police informant, yes. But we didn't discover that until a BBC investigation secretly recalled him confessing in a program 10 years I'm 10 years into a prison sentence a life sentence a life sentence where I would not be here talking to you today had things like this documentary by the BBC not been made because when they made that documentary to talk to him about something completely different he was an informant in the IRA or something to do with with uh, he boasted about being a key witness in the M25 case and that he got paid a substantial amount of reward money and that he was a police informer and we didn't know any of that at the time of our trial Shit. wasn't one of the prosecution's witnesses paid like 25k was that the same guy there was a reward put up partly by the victims and partly by one of our national newspapers, the Daily Mail, uh, and, and it accumulated to 25,000K. Yeah, you're right. I don't know got that money. I've written and we wrote and I wrote at the time I was on remand and after I'd been convicted to the newspaper and sort of say, look, be aware that the money that you paid, believing, went to the person that helped the police apprehend guilty men, may have been paid to one of the perpetrators. That's what I asked the newspapers to investigate. And all they were prepared to say at the time was that the money that they put up as part of the reward, which I believe was 15,000 K, was given to the police to pay to who they believed was the um, informant, if you like, or the person that helped the police, and the other 10,000 from the victim. So 25,000 pounds was paid in my case to someone. But again, I have never seen the documentation to show who that money was paid to. And that's one of the reasons, again, that the Court of European Human Rights declared my convictions, my trial, unfair. You touched on it earlier about the letter. There was a letter that proved that you were innocent. What happened with that? Like, can you talk me through that situation and why it didn't get you out of prison? Let me put it into context. On the night that the, and this is part of my alibi, right? A little bit more about the details. So on the night of the murder, I was with a girlfriend and a number of other girls and one of my co-defendants, Michael Davis, who was the other brown-skinned, dreadlocked guy. And just 
briefly, we all were socialising, smoking a bit of pot, weed, marijuana, whatever you want to call it, which is what we did regularly as young teenagers, smoking weed, having a good time. And we'd gone back to one of the other girls' houses. So there were four girls and there was me and my mate. And we'd gone back to one of the other girls' houses to meet her parents, have something to eat. And we were there between 10.30, uh, I'm not going to be precise about the times, but it was around 10.30 until about half past 12 midnight on the night of the 15th, 16th of December, 1988. And this is the night that the murder and the robberies took place. So when we were at this girl's house and it turned to about half past 12, the girl that we was with, sister and her boyfriend, agreed to give me and my mate, Michael, a lift home. The girl that I was sleeping with at the time agreed to come home with me, wanted to come home. She went, told her parents a lie that she was going to stay at a mate's house, jumped in the car with me. And we all went back to my flat. My co-defendant went to his room, to his flat. I went up to my flat with the girl. And this was at about 12.30. So you, you had a number of witnesses saying, yeah, Raph was with us at our house, around the corner from his flat. He left. We dropped him off. You know, these are independent witnesses, just like you, Andy. Mm. You know, I come to your flat, you meet me for the first time, we have a drink, we have a smoke, and then you give me a lift home. You go back home, go to bed, sleep comfortably. And that's what happened. I went back to my flat with this girl. We had sex, you know, for the next hour or, or whatever, you know, mingled had sex for the next hour or, or, or so, and then crashed. She then tells the police, and this is part of the lie, she then tells the police that I got up and left her at about 2 a.m., 1.32 a.m. in the morning. Now, the murder's already been committed. According to the victim, the murder, the hijacking of the car where the man was murdered had been committed by 11.30. number of witnesses saw the car, the murder had been committed. So that clearly shows I could not, and my co-defendant could not have been one of the perpetrators because the same three men went on to commit the other crime. So we're clear, we, we were not at the murder. Mm. When I was in police custody and held on remand, and I don't know how much detail the police had at this point of my alibi. I don't think they'd been and interviewed any of these witnesses that were able to say that, yeah, they met me for the first time that night. I was at their house. They gave me a lift home. I don't think the police had conducted those interviews with those witnesses at this point. If they did, then it's even more incredible that they then went on to charge me with the murder, knowing that I had a cast iron alibi could not have been at the scene of the crime. When I was on remand and the police had accused me of giving the girlfriend jewellery, which she said I gave to her on the morning after the robberies, when I was on remand, she'd written me this letter to say that she lied. And what she meant by saying that she lied was that I didn't leave her. I didn't get up and leave her. I didn't give her the jewellery. So when I got this letter when I was on remand in custody because what actually happened is we came back to the flat we made love we crashed out smoked a couple of joints and then slept until the following day she went home what the police encouraged her to say was that I left or that she couldn't remember if I got up and I left or whether it was that day or it wasn't that day you know we'd spent many a nights together but they latched on to, well, Raph might got up and gone down, got some weed or whatever it was. So when I was on remand and I received this letter of her saying I she'd lied about me leaving her, about giving her the jury, and that wasn't the first letter. Let's, let's make this absolutely clear because it's crucial. In the months before these crimes were committed, this same girlfriend was aware that I was having another relationship with another girl. 
And she was very jealous of the fact that I was having a relationship with another girl who I went on to marry once I got out of prison, but that's a whole nother romantic story. But prior to my arrest, the girl that was also my alibi, and I hope I'm not making this too confusing, she'd written me a letter before saying she was very jealous of the fact that I was in another relationship with another girl and she wanted me all to herself. So this was months before these crimes were committed, et cetera, et cetera. But, but it, it meant nothing then. But then when I was on remand, charged with these murders, and she wrote me a second letter apologizing for lying. And the reason that she lied was because she was jealous of my relationship, i.e. that's why it was easy for the police to persuade her to tell lies. Mm because she was scorned, she was jealous, she was discovering that I was still in a relationship with another girl and that didn't sit comfortably with her. It gave me hope that when I read this letter, I'm banging on the cell door, I'm calling for the solicitors to come to the prison because I've received this letter. This letter declaring that I did not give her what the police said I give her, that I did not leave her, which the police were using to try and undermine my alibi. That letter was taken to by my solicitors a couple of days later. I'm thinking the doors open. They're saying, sorry, we made a mistake. We've now discovered that the police conspired with witnesses. That didn't happen. My cell door was locked even tighter. The prosecution got hold of that letter and said, it's not to be believed that she'd just done it to try and help me, etc., etc., etc. So nothing came of the fact that this crucial witness had written this letter and apologize. And it was just by luck, just by luck, that when the police searched my property, they discovered the first letter, because I didn't dispose of it. I probably threw it to one side, but they didn't dispose of it. So among the many bits that the police had taken from my property was this exhibit, this piece of evidence, which was a letter. It wasn't until months and months later that we discovered that that note there, that piece of evidence was the original letter. So at least I was able to show that this first letter she wrote to me telling me she was jealous was something that happened long before I was in custody. So the second letter that the prosecution was saying we put her up to didn't stand up because she'd done it before, if that makes sense. If it was just the one, do you see what I mean? Yeah, so it showed, it showed that she genuinely was jealous and that that had been apparent long before this case even came up because there was a previous letter with her saying as much. Absolutely. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. After you were convicted, didn't a juror come forward and say that you were convicted because you were black? 
it's a really tricky one because we have laws in this country where you cannot talk to the jury. You know, the jury are, you know, a no-go zone. So after my conviction, there was a witness who says that a member of the jury had gone to my previous solicitor, who was no longer my solicitor after I was convicted, and had told them that one of the reasons that me and my co-defendants were convicted was because many of the jury who, you know, let me point out, it was an all-white jury apart from one Asian woman, and that Asian woman didn't see through the trial. She left during the trial. I don't know to this day why she was disbarred or for what reason. It may have been that because she was the only ethnic minority or you know somebody of a different race on that jury she may have been challenging the fact in their deliberations or during their downtime that you know how can we as a member of the jury accept what's going on in this case so that might have been the fact but I'm just hypothetically Mm. just making that up I don't know what happened but what I do know is that my jury of 12 men and women was made up of 11 white jurors and one Asian juror before the trial came to conclusion that Asian juror was no longer present. And one of the jury members after I had been convicted did turn up at a solicitor's office complaining that we were convicted because we were black. I don't know if it was that Asian juror member or not to this day. Jesus. (laughs) Okay. So then, um, you know, you spend a bit of time in prison and then you, you launch an appeal. The judge just dismissed it straight away. How do you stay positive in that situation? Do you know what? I I liken it to many things. I think, what was the analogy? For me, it was, I was so angry. I was so, so bitter. From the moment I was arrested, charged and imprisoned in a prison within a prison, I grew up, I became a man overnight with an anger that burnt inside my tummy. It's like wanting to win. It's like being on a football pitch or a rugby pitch or a cricket pitch and you're down, but you know you can do something to turn it around or you can turn to that key player. And if you can get it to the Ronaldos of the world who can hit a ball or whatever, you could win You could, or you could at least equalise. That's what it felt deep down inside me, that I was so angry that I knew I couldn't give up because I knew I could win this because the evidence was there, the key evidence, this was wrong. I'd been wrongly convicted. The victims had not got justice. I didn't think about that at the time. I wasn't necessarily thinking about the victims, but what I did know is they would have been thinking about me. They would have been thinking about me and my co-defendants being wrongly convicted because they know what they saw. They know that the men that were responsible for the crimes horrendous crimes that were committed against them was not us and so even though they came and they gave evidence I was holding on to those little things that people beyond us knew that we were not guilty whether it was the police whether it was the victims of the crime who deserved justice and still have not got justice to this day whether it was the witnesses who had given fabricated evidence or the the newspapers who have paid the reward to people that they know may have been responsible for these crimes or that the police had hoodwinked them into receiving that money and giving it to people who shouldn't have got that reward money. So I knew deep down all of these things and much, much more. And that was my driving force. That's why I didn't give up. I didn't give up for my own family who were standing beside me. I've got three sisters who were trying to bring up their own kids and family who were fighting on my behalf. 
And then I started to turn the media. The media was starting to ask questions. Hold on. How did these guys get convicted when the evidence mm. clearly showed they could not have been guilty? You know, they were starting to, at the time they didn't because, it, you know, our faces on the front covers sold more newspapers than if they were sort of saying, oh, maybe these guys are innocent because we like to demonize. So it was accumulation of a number of different things that when my first appeal in 1993, which was three years after my convictions, um, was turned down, as devastating as that was, as disheartening as that was, it wasn't a give up point for me at all. There's a quote in your book, it's never the problem, that's the problem, it's what you think about the problem. And that's exactly what I believe for most things today. And that's what I mean. I knew that I could do more because it was me. I was the one who was angry. I was the one who was volatile. And by that, I mean, I challenged the authorities, although they were not responsible, i.e. the prison system itself was not responsible for my wrongful imprisonment. I took my anger out on them by challenging everything that they put in front of me. And that required some deep resilience that I didn't know I had, but was building. And by that, I meant I spent a lot of time being punished for not doing what the regime expected of me. So I didn't realize that the best way of addressing the problem, if you like, was to recognize what the problem was. And at the time, I did it with my fist, with my mouth, with my anger, not realizing that I was the problem in my own problem that I was doing it the wrong way, rather than getting my voice out of the cell, out of the prison, into the public's domain. I was just bouncing off of the walls in prison. How did you manage to get through that phase and organise another appeal? Because ultimately that's the goal. I know you're in prison, you're getting in the odd scrap. You've got to survive, you've got to earn that respect in prison. How do you manage to get yourself through that headspace and then into space of organizing another appeal and how did, how did that come about well it involved a lot of things and i would say one was keeping physically fit and mentally fit was a priority for me because i you know very sporty football was my sport and in some of the prisons i was able to play football so that distracted me from the everyday challenging of my conviction going to the gym and it was the only job I would do in the prison so I refused to do anything but work in the gymnasium and that took years of beatings and challenges before that came to fruition but going to the gym keeping myself physically fit or even just exercising in my cell kept me physically fit and I mean I was finely tuned you can imagine you know we like to exercise we like to take care of sport but I could do it every day because I had nothing else to do so I could exercise every day and I wasn't one of those guys who was out to build muscle you know I'd run a marathon around an exercise yard think about running around a circle you know for x amount of miles over and over and over again where you just switch off and your body just does it automatically all of a sudden someone stands in front of you and says stop you know you've just run 26 miles you know (laughs) stop and you didn't even realize that you did that's how fit I was um, alongside other guys that were in a similar position to me so physically keeping myself fit kept my mind fit because otherwise I would never have been able to survive. The second thing was reading every document in my case over and over again. I'm talking about every line, every word, and preparing these meticulous spreadsheets where I questioned every inconsistency, every 
thing to do with my case was carefully documented by me and then taken to whoever it would be that would list an IES solicitor, a barrister, a campaigner. So that consumed many years of my life. I'm not talking about, you know, a couple of hours a day. I was talking about hours and hours every day working on my case. Even when you thought I'd read a document, I'd go back and read it again and again just to see if there was something else. And I was discovering many things about my case, many things about myself, and also educating myself, educating myself about the law. So I was reading something, not understanding it, going to a law book or trying to understand what it meant legally. So those were the two key components for how I was able to put together enough questions, enough inconsistencies, different to what we presented at the original trial. A lot of this stuff had been presented at the first appeal, but it was also the third element, and that was my study in journalism in prison. So I I, I kept fit. I, I now understood the law. I now knew how to challenge my conviction legally. And now I needed the media. The media played a significant role in portraying me as a monster, portraying me as this dangerous man. I needed the media to tell people I was not those individual. I was not that individual. I was not that monster. I was not responsible for the crime. And for them to raise questions in the public's mind, i.e. that would get to politicians, that would get into the criminal justice system. So I wanted to understand how the media worked. So I studied journalism through a correspondence course, which was all very difficult because I was in maximum security prisons throughout my time. I was always isolated in cells by myself. I was often spending many, many weeks in segregation blocks where I could not have anything but myself, my physical being, you know, there was nothing in that cell, but just me, which plays tricks on your minds and and your behavior, your psychological, psychiatric challenges. So I did study journalism and then I started to reach out. That became my voice. You, Mm. You know, I started to reach out to the media, to the various different outlets. It started off with the more socialist type left wing publications and broadcasters who would always support causes like mine if they believed in it. But then it reached through to some of the the more national media and that snowballed. People started to write stories. If there was an issue about something legally to do with a miscarriage of justice, I would write a letter to the columns page in some of our broadsheets, the Guardian and the Independent and the, the Sunday Times. I would write a comment piece to sort of question it. So my voice was getting out beyond the prison walls for the very first time. It wasn't just bouncing off of the walls. And that was all very much instrumental in more people outside wanting to get involved in the campaign that was now questioning the safety of my conviction. And that's why eventually we were able to take the case back to not only the British Criminal Court of Appeal, but the Court of Human Rights. And then you got your appeal again, and how did that go? I won. I won my freedom back. You, Hence why you're here. <laughs> that's, kind of, yeah. that's why I'm, I'm here, Andy. And, and that was all very terrifying because, look, all we've talked about really did come down to, when you think about it, you, you know, something that took 12 years of my life, the best years of my life, I should have spent my 20s like most people spend their 20s. Yeah, I might have been doing it in a different way, smoking pot, 
you know, having lots of sex, going to lots of pies, but who doesn't when you're 20? You do that at university. That wasn't my life. You do it, but you're getting academics at the same time, the possibility of job. That wasn't my life. I think the European Court of Human Rights decision was a significant one because a panel of 21 judges who looked at the facts that I and my new team of solicitors and an eminent European barrister put together and put in front of them, 21 judges ruled unanimously that I was deprived the right to a fair trial. Now, they reached that decision on the basis that the prosecution did not disclose all of the evidence that could have helped me at my original trial, i.e. some of the stuff we talked about, who got the reward money, why there was no disclosure about whether this individual was an informant and whether he conspired with the police. That's just one element. But they also reached that decision on the basis that they read and saw for themselves that the victims had described white men being responsible, or at least two white men and a black man, three black men being locked up. So they were mm. not standing for this. And we're talking the European judges. So the decision, the unanimous decision by the European Court of Human Rights to declare my convictions unsafe and that I'd been deprived of the right to a fair trial under Article 6 of the European Convention, da -de -da -de -da, that then forced the hand of the British criminal justice system, who then had to refer my case back to the Court of Appeal. We get back to the Court of Appeal. The judges reluctantly, because they never like to accept that they got it wrong, reluctantly accepted what the European Court decision was that we were deprived the right of a fair trial, even though they still refused to disclose that information because it would have been too embarrassing for mm. them to admit that what they'd done for 12 years had hidden evidence that could have proven I was innocent from the beginning, i.e. that the police had conspired with witnesses. So they never disclosed that evidence, which we could have then used to beat the police with after our convictions were quashed. My convictions were quashed, and I'll say this. On the day that I was set free, I walked down the steps, the back steps. The judges have just declared my convictions unsafe. I'm free to go, if you like. And I'm paraphrasing this because it never quite happens like that. But I got to the door that was going to be opened for the very last time for me. And, and I want people to comprehend that because I'm talking about doors for the last 12 years have all been opened for me. I've never been able, I was never able to open a door for myself for 12 years, never reach for a handle. That, that's what it really means to be in quarantine, to be isolated. And we started off talking about that, but you know, that door, and this is the door that will free me, that opens me from the cells, from the shackles that I'd been in for 12 years, was being opened for the very last time. And it was opened. And when that door opened and I was able to step out and I fell into the arms of my sister and I cried for the first time in 12 years, all the bitter angerness that was deep inside me almost lifted off of my shoulders, the weight that was around me, the physical beatings that I endured from the prison officers, the fight that I'd been fighting for 12 years, it all almost left my shoulders, as did my inability to make decisions, have choice, open doors for myself, walk faster than my feet could take me by traveling on tra transport, you know, the things that we take for granted, you know, hugging and kissing someone, making love, going into a shop and deciding whether I want Heinz baked beans or a snicker bar or marathon bar, whatever it's called these days, you know, all those things I'd been deprived of. And that's the enormity of being not only in prison, 
but it was magnified for someone like me who was wrongfully in prison and never did accept a day of the time that I spent in prison. Jesus. <laughs> I guess the world would have, I mean, 12 years, the world would have changed a hell of a lot in that time as well, wouldn't it? Didn't have mobile phones when I went to prison. That was a world changer. They didn't have the internet when I went to prison. People were not using emails. God, it makes me sound really old, but, you know, these things, they were just in their infancy. I get out of prison. I'm crying. I'm getting into the, you know, I stand on the Court of Appeal steps and I shout about the fact 12 years of my life had been taken away from me. But one of the most profound moments for me, as I said, I lost all those years in prison for something I didn't do. And finally, they realized that. But, you know, after that moment, people think you go off and live a life of of excitement and whatever. And there is an element because I... You kind of have. You kind of have. Some of the, some of the stories. I, I very much have. But, you know, I got into the back of the taxi with my sister and my family and they handed me a mobile phone and I didn't know what it was. I didn't have a mobile phone. And I mean, I know that sounds a little bit cliche, but it was true. I'd never held a mobile phone. All of a sudden I'm being given this phone and I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I didn't know what to do with it. Yeah, it was a phone, but I didn't know how to use it. I was used to picking a handle off of a cradle putting it to my ears and talking to my family from the prison cell block phone they didn't have mobile phones when I went in prison all of a sudden I'm being handed this little device and I'm kind of looking around trying to pretend that I knew what I was doing and they were laughing at me in the innocent way and that is a replica of of many of the things that I went on to discover in terms of my reintegration if you like back into society some of the most difficult elements was you know having social conversation i'd only talked about my case in prison Mm. in all those years all of a sudden i'm sitting down environments where people talking about what they did two weeks ago um at the football match or the rugby match or the cricket match i couldn't do that i'd never even thought about that because you get sick of people talking about COVID, right because it's the one thing we've all got in common you would have only ever talked about your case for 12 years all of a sudden i'm in an environment where people are talking about things that i would look at and find fascinating and it could be the minute thing because yeah my conversation was really difficult you you know with prisoners talking to prisoners if there was a a, a minor dramatic incident it would be the talk for a week because it's something different otherwise it's anonymous so you're absolutely right and that that's really difficult and then there's the awkwardness you know where people are meeting me for the very first time don't know anything about me they're friends of my girlfriend they've had a life they you know grew up in university together and they turn around and say what university did you go to university of prison you know sometimes <laughs> it's awkward because you don't know whether to say to them or not i've been to prison because some people reacted i mean i've never been precious of protecting who i am and what i am i'm very proud of who i am and what i am you know mm. because it's made me the man i am the success i am but yeah there are, there is much more to it than just coming out i mean for me it's been a you know, I was at the middle of the mountain and I've gone on to climb almost to the top and I'm still climbing. But for many people, they fall off the cliff, become alcoholics or, or drug users and, and never live a life because of the trauma they go through. I bet. And you've set up the Raphael Road Foundation. Do you, do you want to tell me a little bit about that? I spent 16 years working for the BBC after I got out of prison, very successful career as an investigative journalist using my my connections with the criminal underworld that I'd met in prison to go on and do things using my ability to. You duck. met some big dogs. You were friends with like Reggie Cray, Bronson, all the all the big names in prison, weren't you? I was, yeah, I I was because I had no choice. You know, I was banged up opposite Reggie Cray for for a number of years. You know, he was the kind of old man. 
you know, he was and is known as the notorious Cray twins, one of the notorious Cray twins. But I saw him sit in my cell and cry his eyes out. You know, I saw a different side to the man that, you know, we have these iconic pictures of him and his brother, the black and white picture of him and his brother, or the iconic pictures that were taken back in the 60s of these kind of notorious gangsters in their, you know, meticulous suits, et cetera, et cetera. But I saw a different side to all of these characters in prison, notorious gangsters, and that's not me glorifying them in any way, shape or form. I'm just saying the reality is very, very different from the image that we're often led to believe is, is, is the right one. So yeah, I did meet Bronson in segregation. You know, he spent most of his years in prison. He was a car thief and a petty robber who spent more time in prison than anybody else simply because he wanted to play the tough guy. And he was, you know, not to us prisoners in reality, but the image the media portrayed of him is very much that character. But for us, you know, in prison, everybody is almost equal. And that depends on your offence of course. Mm. But yeah, I spent, when I got out of prison, I was very fortunate to get an opportunity to work for the BBC. And I went on to work as an investigative journalist, an undercover journalist, smuggling diamonds, going to Afghanistan, looking at heroin, doing very, very many things that distracted me from the reality of the experience I'd been through. And I set up the foundation because when I left the BBC, I started a series for Netflix inside the world's toughest prisons that involves me going around the world spending seven days inside some of the world's toughest prisons you, you know people often say to me why you know you spent all those years trying to get out of prison all of a sudden here you are voluntarily going back and that's because I think I can use that insight and experience that I garnered to try and educate people about what prison is really like and it's about humanity, isn't it? It's about many different things. It's not sensationalizing criminals or sensationalizing crime. It's about if it happens to you, your brother, your mother, your sister, what and how would you want them to be treated? And do you want to become the next victim of a criminal? And anybody that watches the show will understand that it's not entertaining. In, there is entertainment. Of course there is. But it's more about getting people to think and change their, their narrative. So the foundation was born out of the Netflix show. When I'd been into a number of these horrendous prisons and saw the violence and the lack of food, the lack of education, the lack of facilities, the lack of resources, for different reasons, I set up the foundation to try and address that problem globally. So that's what the Raphael Rowe Foundation is. It's about humanising prisoners trying to abolish dehumanizing treatment uh, and then helping them reintegrate back into society to prevent further victims that's what it's really about that's what the heart of it is and you know we're almost out of time here well we are out of time i've got to let you go but your your book notorious life with no parole for a crime i did not commit it's available now on audible and it does cover off what we've talked about in the interview but it we have literally just scratched the surface. There's so much more about what you're talking about with your your Netflix show, with your BBC stuff. It is an incredible read. So I'd recommend if you like this interview, go and get it in your ears on Audible now. Notorious Life with No Parole for a Crime I Did Not Commit by Rafael Rowe. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Andy, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And I um, reach out to your listeners to say, go and do what you just said they should do, you know, um, support the work that I, I'm doing, because it's important, not just for me, but for, for you. And by that, I mean, 
we can make a difference together. Let's do it. Thanks again for listening and thank you to everyone for sending in your guest suggestions. We've got some cracking interviews lined up. Keep them coming in. Just flick me a message on Instagram or Twitter. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.